Hello, everyone. This is the first podcast that we're trying to put out at Red Bicycle Media. My name is James Pizarro. I founded Red Bicycle Media around 10 years ago and had had the uh, privilege and, and really just um, the fun of meeting so many people. And as if they're not enough podcasts, I decided to uh, just at least give it a try and see if I can get people to at least uh, join in the community of, of, of filmmakers and creatives to kind of uh, tell their stories. Uh, I have had, the, again, the, the, the privilege of working with so many different types of people and so many lines of work and walks of life that I um, want to at least invite them in to see if they could talk about their stories and how they've tried to remain creative in a very tough world to, to stay that way. And, and, uh, I, I really have tried to develop a sharing culture in our, uh, in our own circle, as well as, uh, finding daily inspiration through doing little things that are creative, whether it be, you know, filming some, a passion project or filming a spec commercial or, or a spec scene, um, it hasn't always been successful, but at the end of the day, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So having said that, I'll get right to the podcast and talk about our first guest. His name is Grant Peel. I met Grant a few years ago on a common project, and Grant has uh, had a, a great background of being uh, a, a director, producer, and also uh, a great storyteller. He has a uh, working connection with Still Motion, now Muse Storytelling, and you have to check their site out. Uh, they've done uh, a lot of great work for uh, some pretty uh, pretty fun um, companies and uh, forward-thinking people. Uh, today he talks really about the art of conducting an interview and the importance of connecting with the interviewee. He has a different style, which I've defer- definitely been witness to and improved my own interview techniques, which I think has been exciting. Um, it's really important. Uh, he also discussed the importance of uh, kind of breaking down uh, a scene or breaking down an interview or a shoot uh, in a post-mortem, and that's something we tend to do to set you up for future success. Um, so again, uh, we'll talk about, he talks about how, what, what it takes to be a great storyteller uh, and and really just uh, something that I think you're going to enjoy. So Grant, every every good story starts out with the beginning. So tell me about your uh, beginning. Oh, uh, I'll attempt to be brief but thorough in sharing my backstory because um, my origin story is one that I feel like many people will uh, associate with, and there'll be real value in that. Um, but I tend to be a storyteller and so I can at times be long winded. So attempt to bring me in, uh, if you will, James. Uh, so I went to college as a theater major. I got the bug of wanting to tell, express and be a part of powerful stories, um, in junior high, high school, when I was a part of, um, summer theater, high school productions, things of that nature. And, uh, was 
fortunate enough to be invited to participate in a theater program at Otterbein College and, and, um, and, you know, was surrounded by folks that I now Facebook stalk who have gone on to do incredibly powerful performances. They have been on The Walking Dead or they've performed with Sally Field at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. They're winning Tonys uh, on Broadway. They're touring Europe and, and across America on Broadway. These are really powerful actors. Um, but I didn't have the courage to pursue uh, a career in theater. And I knew that I didn't want to raise a family in New York or Los Angeles. So I settled for um, creating a life for myself in Cowtown, Ohio. And uh, it's a community of about 10,000 people. And um, uh, my lifestyle is rich in family um, and uh, small town values. And I absolutely love it. But they're right about the same time of 08, 09, 2010, when the 5D Mark II uh, set about a revolution of filmmakers. Um, I too, like everybody else with them was a moth to the flame. Uh, I started uh, consuming as much 5d Mark II footage as I possibly could on Vimeo. And, uh, if you watched any Vimeo in 08, 09, 2010, uh, you immediately got caught in the vortex of wedding filmmakers right? That was the big, hot, interesting uh, content that was out there. And the reason being that uh, it was now beautiful, right? You know, had shallowed up the field and you knew that these were brides. These were real people who were experiencing cinematic moments, um, right? The really powerful experiences um, in three, five, four minute highlight films. Um, and I went, ah, oh, these wedding films are better than actually being a participant, Right. All of a sudden you would watch a wedding film and go, that was more awesome than if I were there. That was more awesome than if I was the best man. Like, you know, like, in fact, you know, if I'm a, a bride or a groom and I'm looking back on this, I go, that is my best life. Right. Those are the highlights of my moment. I've encapsulated that. And it's and I went, I want that. Like, I want that for me and I want that for my family. And I had just had my first son. And I went, I want to be a filmmaker and make the world's best home movies. That was initially the, the draw to do that. Um, and so I invested in a 5D Mark II. And then I went, along with shit. Along with thousands of people. Yeah, of course, right? Absolutely. Along with every aspiring filmmaker known to man that could find a way to scrape nickel and dime, you know, into what was a very affordable filmmaking tool by comparison to filmmaking expenses, right? Like most Hollywood films would be, you know, tens upon tens of thousands of dollars in equipment. And here was a camera that, you know, was like 2,500 bucks or something, right? That, you know, felt like, you know, oh, that's very approachable, yet still an investment that doesn't come lightly, right? You, you don't just... You found a way to scrape that 2,500 bucks you, together. Yeah, you find you're kind of like, it's not in my bed, but I'll well, get it. And it's certainly not something that most spouses get excited about spending money on, right? Like, exactly. You have to find a way to get the family PO approved, right? So I got the family PO approved to, to, to invest in this, this uh, 5D Mark II. And then I went, holy shit, I don't know what to do with this thing. Right. I have no idea what to do with this thing. Uh, and so I started looking for tutorials online who could teach me how to do, how to use this thing. And, you know, along about that time, the one group that was offering education was still motion and what they weren't only offering, um, tutorials, but they were offering inspiration, right? The pieces that they were creating separated themselves from the rest of the wedding filmmaking market. They didn't at first, but they started to because they started to see the power of story. So instead of just showing a bunch of crazy visuals and tossing it over music and, and calling it a highlight reel, they went, let's do something more meaningful. Let's tell a powerful story that happens to take place at a wedding, as opposed to let's find the most interesting way to film the rings and the dress, 
And that was, that was a noticeable difference on my part, but I couldn't articulate it. Like I had no way of going, Oh, what they're doing is this. Right. Um, but I knew that it was different. And so I wanted to figure out what the hell was different. Why are they different? What are they doing? That's well, different. That, that was the, that was the magic. Cause you, you thought, wow, they're just cool shots put together, right? You couldn't define like there's something they're doing. That's there's different. something. Yeah. There's yep. something that's different. And so, um, back then, uh, if they didn't radio check the right little box on Vimeo, um, there was the ability for an end user to download the source file. I could just go into Vimeo and be like, download, right? And I'd be like, thanks for that wedding. And so what I would do is I would take these, these files that I would download and I would put them inside of Adobe Premiere. And I would go through and I would create a, a, an edit at every single cut. And then I took that first frame and I exported it into a storyboard that I created in, in Illustrator. And then I described it and I put a spreadsheet that like talked about every single length of clip. So You're that insane. I was, I was reverse engineering it. Exactly. Right? Because I'm like, what, what are they doing right. in their end? Well, this is what it taught me. Most shots were like two and a half seconds long. And I would, as a dad, be filming something and I'd be rolling for like three minutes before I'd move. And you're going, you're not going to use any of that. Or you're going to use three seconds of a moment in a powerful film and then you need to move on. To hell with three seconds, though. Well, for sure. It was a very purposeful, powerful, well-composed, beautifully lit, emotion-filled three seconds, right? right. Like, and that, those were the next layers that you start to learn. But at first, if all you did was just film something wide, medium, and tight, and edit into two and a half second increments, bing, bang, bong, bing, bang, bong. And then you just put a whole string of those together. Your work would immediately be 10 X better than most other aspiring filmmakers. And I learned that early, right. And just by kind of, you know, backing my way into it, right. Not really understanding that, um, it cut to a moment where they tweeted out that they needed a PA in Chicago. And I went, do I have the courage to answer this request for a production assistant? I was like, well, hell yeah, I do. Like, how can I not want to work with the people that like I'm cyber stalking on a daily basis? So yeah, I'm down. Like, let's do this thing. So I, I answered and they said, great. Can you be there at 4 a.m. on Thursday? Yeah, sounds great. And then I got scared because I didn't know anything. I mean, nothing. And so I tried to back out. I'm like, um, I, I, I DM'd him real quick. I'm like, oh, just to be clear, I don't know the city of Chicago because I thought they're going to ask me to drive around and go, you know, and I'm going to know. And then they said, oh, it all takes place in the, in the aquarium. You won't need to leave. Okay. All right. So I can't get out of it now. So I drove up to Chicago. It cost me more to like put myself in and to get my food and my, my hotel and gas and time than they were paying, but it was going to be worth it. Right. And I show up and I'm 37 and my counterpart for the day is a 19 year old PA as they should be, right? Most PAs should be 19. They shouldn't be 37, right? Well, you know what PA stands for, pay again, is, <laughs> is what we ended up doing. It's just pain and pain. You thought, because you're not there to make money. You're there for the experience. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that could be just schlepping coffee all day, like whatever it is, right? Like it, no worries there. So I was down, I was ready to go, whatever, show up at 4 a.m. And the very first thing they asked me to do is put, it, put this tripod up. And I peed down my leg because I went, I had no idea what to do. And I thought, here's, here is, you know, here are the filmmakers that I want to impress, right? That I want to be working with or learning from. And I'm immediately going to be exposed in the first 30 seconds on set because I don't know how to, to create this, to set up this tripod. And so I just turned my back to them and I figured it out. And I did it and I walked away like, yep, 
I know exactly what I'm doing. And that was my entire MO all for the three day shoot that I was with them is I just kept thinking to myself, whenever they asked for a 50 millimeter lens, you know, today I could reach into a bag and I'd know it by feel, right? Like, oh, that's a 50, right? But then I had no idea. So I would just turn my back to them and I would look and shuffle through the, the, the shoot sack as fast as I could to identify the one that said 50 on it. And then I'd turn around and hand it to them. Um, and that was, that was it. I mean, and from that moment forward, I went like the key to my success as a filmmaker is not going to be my knowledge. It's going to be my willingness to work my ass off until I figure it out. Because the, all of these things I learned immediately are approachable. They're doable. They're achievable. There's nothing that isn't that, that is happening in the world of filmmaking that we can't through trial and error effort, sweat, and tears, figure out. And more importantly, the journey is where the sweet sauce is. It's not in the final product. It's in learning, creating, feeling, experiencing, collaborating, you know, ideating. It's in all of that, that the magic and the, and the fulfillment comes from it. And so, and that's why I was like, okay, great. Like I'm down for this, right? Like however long it takes me and what, in whatever way the, you know, I end up where I, you know, win an Oscar or I, you know, uh, do something that, you know, plays to 20 people in the local VA. Like it doesn't matter, right? Because it's going to be the journey that is going to be of interest to me and not the destination. And so, you know, that's how my little budding film career began was just by cyber stalking, reverse engineering, um, and then being willing to just eat crow for however long it was going to take to get better. Do you, th you find that just being on set, uh, by via osmosis or diffusion or whatever you call it. How much did you actually pick up and know that, you know, God, I, shit, I can figure this stuff out. It just means I'm just glad to be on set. And that's what was the most important thing because you had bought your ticket for admission, literally, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in, in terms of like how much can be learned on set for me, everything. Um, and, and that's if it comes with the spirit of wanting to learn. You have to be observational. I think that that's probably one of our greatest skills as filmmakers is being observational. Just knowing and anticipating human behavior so that we can then either in a documentary film create an environment where the most authentic, pure, and uh, real moment can actually manifest and play itself out in front of our camera without us having as little impact in that moment as possible. Or in a narrative piece, knowing human behavior on a level that will allow us to create the space and the encouragement that an actor can then create and perform that emotion for us. And, but if you're not, if you're not observant, if you aren't taking in all of your surroundings at all times and trying to gather as much inspiration from, um, all experiences in life at all times, then, you know, we run the risk of putting the blinders on and not being informed, not having any of that stuff, you know, so could I show up on set as a production assistant and learn nothing? Absolutely. Could I show up as a production assistant and learn how to be a better director all day? The question is when you're there and you're present and things are happening, what are you watching? What questions are you asking? Who, who are you having networking with? Who are you dialoguing with over lunch? What questions are you asking those people? So, you know, not only did I play the role of a production assistant for three days in, you can bet your ass that when it was lunchtime, I was finding a way to sit next to somebody that I wanted to learn something from. And I was asking questions over, you know, a hot ham and cheese 
for that 30 minutes and they weren't getting away without me walking away going, okay, today was entirely worth it. If nothing else, just for this 10 minutes that we shared over this sandwich and within your team, within the crew, so that they want to do powerful and awesome work that they want to challenge themselves to take a moment and a breath before we roll on every scene and say, how can I make this better? in the next 10 seconds before we hit go so that everybody is elevated and raised to that next level. And if you can do those two things, then it is really much more about your approach to something and the way that you're, that you're, um, the, the attitude that you're bringing to a piece much more so than do you have the right equipment? Are you shooting 8k? So uh, Grant, one of the strongest things I've seen you do, and I want to, I, I want you to talk about the evolution of, um, conduct the art of conducting an interview. Everybody thinks they know how to interview, until you, you know you have really dissected the art of doing a great interview, and you uh, alluded to that before about not being, um, not having the interviewee be performative or really feel like uh, I, you have a couple of, uh, great stories about that. But uh, tell me how that evolved. Was it before you did your documentary, or was it after? And please talk about that. So um, yeah, for me, the art of an interview is tremendously important. It's um, nigh near a religion um, in terms of the, 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 where I find that I can offer solid value to a set. Um, it's like, okay, uh, it, this is wheelhouse for me. I, I love conducting um, powerful and effective interviews. That wasn't always the case. So the first film that I made um, was a feature-length documentary called I'm Fine Thanks. It explores complacency. Why do we exchange our dreams for a complacent lifestyle? It was a reflection of my own personal journey into becoming a filmmaker, right? It was, hey, I had shelved all of my dreams and aspirations to be a storyteller. I was putting my boys to bed at night, um, encouraging them to you know, think big things and do big things, but I wasn't modeling that behavior. So I said, great line in the sand, I'm going to go do this. And so uh, my friend Adam Baker, who was the producer and I, we assembled a team and we took a van, you know, 10,000 miles across America and interviewed 52 people about this subject. Baker conducted most of the interviews in that, in that um, documentary. And the reason being is that we were under the assumption that producers play that role more frequently than a director does when it comes to a documentary. And so as a result of that, that's the habit that we uh, kind of um, find ourselves falling into. But I was, I would always back clean up. So he would conduct the interview. And then at the end of the, the interview, then he would step aside and I would step in and, and I was there to raise any additional questions, uh, challenge them on any thoughts that I felt like maybe they needed to be challenged on and that kind of a thing. Um, and then um, shortly thereafter, I was, helping out on some corporate bio docs, right? Like it's the small business story that we all know that we're invited to tell, right? It's the origin story or it's the aspirational story that a small business has. And, um, and as a result of that, uh, I was invited to conduct some of these interviews and, um, in working, um, with the team of filmmakers that I was working with, the style and approach to that kept increasingly becoming more and more sophisticated and more and more intentional, right? So instead of just finding ourselves going into the habits of what might be expected on a film set, quote unquote, um, like we did when Baker was conducting the interviews because his title said producer, that's what happens. Um, you know, on, on film sets, you often have the formalities of um, slate, 
right? And and sound speed, speed, you know, camera speed, speed, you know, blah, 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 all of this vernacular that happens around that. Now, all of that immediately sets about a performative quality because everybody says to ourselves, why are we here in this room right now? We're here to conduct this quote unquote interview. And this is what we all need to do. So we all put on these figurative hats, director and, and cameraman and DP and sound guy, you know, all of these things. And we went, wait a minute, how do we remove all of that? How do you strip away all of that? How do you make the, um, the, the lights and the camera and the audio gear figuratively not exist? Right. How do you remove it from the paradigm of the person that you're having this conversation with on camera? Because we all realize that like we have our most powerful moments and our most revealing moments when we're just having conversations with friends, not when we're, you know, standing in front of people, you know, on stage with the need to perform or to be something that isn't who we are. And so as a result of that, man, we just lean into that and more and more and more techniques came about to the point where we realized that if we have conversation with somebody in the other room before we actually have our on-camera conversation, we can invite them naturally without even needing to acknowledge that that's what we're doing just through small gestures, like a, a, a tug on someone's elbow will naturally bring them into the other room if you're having conversation with them and you can keep that conversation going to the moment where you just gesture to the chair that they're to sit in. And if you've removed them from any of the time that the lights were being set up and the, the audio um, you know, boom pole was being positioned and all of those things, if you can remove them from that environment as that all of that gets built, then you can actually just bring them into this naturally bring them into the interview situation, invite them to have a seat and you can continue your conversation. And if that conversation never breaks, then it's only a conversation, right? So we can remove the idea of first question. This is how we begin, right? Like all of those kinds of things get removed and the goal being, and we actually have this on camera um, from dozens of people is that in the middle of your on camera conversation, they're going to go, are we going to start soon? That's that's awesome. Now, was that an evolution then? It was. I mean, did you did you start by saying we're not going to call cut any? I mean, we're not going to call action anymore and have people uh, doing it because we've stopped doing that as well. In, in you know, uh, in, in observance of what you've been doing, we we said we ne we will have some sort of signal squeeze on the shoulder. We have a code fifty fifty or wh whatever it is. We we just roll without without them saying, so did you evolve in that and said, it Hey does. man, this really gets people comfortable. It does evolve in, in that sense. And it, and it, and it was like, it, it was just asking ourselves the question. So one of the other habits that I think are tremendously powerful in filmmaking is postmortem, right? Like going back and reviewing, how do we improve what we've just accomplished? Right. And so if you do that at the end of every single piece that you've ever made, your next piece will be its best because you will be at your best. And so, you know, when you get out of that habit, that's when your work, you know, starts to either become complacent. It's when you're no longer challenging yourself creatively. It's when you're no longer growing. It's, you know, and so as a result of that, at the end of every one of these, you know, um, experiences, we could invite ourselves to say, how do we do that better? And you go, oh, well, like we can do it better by making sure that no one is on their phone while we're having this on-camera conversation, right? Because the audio guy in the corner could distract by checking his phone, the person that we're having an on-camera conversation with and change the dynamic of the room entirely, right? So it's like those small decisions that can make all of the difference in the world that you want to continue to elevate. And I, 
you know, I, I've learned and have developed techniques that, um, you know, improve my ability to segue from where we are in conversation to where I want them to go in conversation. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been invited to do occasionally uh, as a, like a dog and pony show is um, to teach some classes uh, to other aspiring filmmakers, which is a tremendously rewarding opportunity uh, as a give back. And um, in a, in a how to conduct a powerful interview um, scenario, one of the things we'll do is we'll ask the, the, the group of filmmakers to come up with three questions that they want me to ask naturally um, to someone that we're just going to have an improv conversation with. And of course they're giving you these crazy random ideas, right? Like, are you a boxers and brief guy? Um, what was the name of your first dog? And you know, um, uh, do you brush your teeth right or left-handed, right? Like, you know, you're going, how do I go from those, like, you know, those three random ideas. Um, but, uh, as a powerful example, you know, say for example, that, that, um, I need you to go from, you know, what's the name of your dog to, are you a boxers and brief guy? Right. So I'm asking you, know, James, you ever had a dog in your life? No, I have not. You've never had a dog. Never had a oh, dog in my life. Dude. Yeah. So, so two thoughts about that. The first of which is I got this neighbor, uh, who thought about getting a dog for her, her kids. And, um, and she's having a, a conversation with a friend of hers and she's like, I'm thinking about getting a, a dog for my kids, but I don't know if I should. And her friend said, well, I really think you need to do that because dogs teach empathy. Right. And her friend said, well, when I grew up, I didn't have a dog. And her friend said, exactly. <laughs> and she goes, oh, yeah, you're right. I need to get a dog for my kids. Right. So, yeah. you know, like so having a dog is a really powerful thing. But like dogs bring such joy and happiness into your lives. Like my my dog always used to like go and, and grab my underwear and like just take it down the hallway. Right. Like you're right. Like and so like right now, could you imagine him like running through with the box? Are you boxer or brief guy? Yeah, um, I am a boxer. You're a boxer guy. guy? Oh, boxer a boxer brief, brief guy. Oh, so back. you're like a hybrid oh, dude. Yeah. Really? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that is wild. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. So see, now I ask you about your dog. Right. And we've gotten to boxers and briefs and right. none of that felt unnatural. Right. Right. Because I could bring all of that into me. But that's a special skill that people have to know how to do that. that but I've developed it over time because that wasn't something that was natural to the way that I was conducting an interview before. So I would do these mind maps. Right. So it was like, all right, I have 10 major story points that I need to hit with somebody. And I'm not going to ask them sequentially because often our, the emotion of an environment is, um, doesn't happen that way, right? Like it's not that convenient. And so I wouldn't want you crying on the second question that I ask you it, when I have eight more questions that I need to get from you. Right. Sense, like we can sense. do that. Right. Okay. Do you write any of this down? So or? initially I would, but then I'll memorize it. Right. So then I've got a mind map, right. That, uh, that affords me that I know that these story points are the ones that I have to hit. Um, we've actually elevated that now to the point where um, it's possible through the use of um, either uh, a laptop or a phone that you can put it out of eyeline of the person that you're having a conversation with and you can have a live Google document that has all of your notes in it. And as you hit them, a producer who's in the other room can be removing the items that you still that you've already captured and right. bringing up larger and actually can giving you real time feedback that it's like, oh, they stumbled over this. Ask it again. Yep. I need to get Find this clean. Way Find it. another way to get right to ask that again. But it's as a result of that mind map and needing to go through the 10 story points that I realized like, oh, I need a really solid way to get from question three to question four. And that's unnatural. Right. Right. Like how on earth am I going to do that? And that's when I realized, oh, it's like tennis. I can bring the ball into me. And when the ball is into me, I can go anywhere with it before I hand it back to you. Right. right? And so that's when I can make crazy connections with like a dog and underwear 
that make a segue feel natural because it's conversational. Because if I did it like through a list of itemized questions, all right, James, question number one, you ever own a dog? <laughs> question number two, are you a boxer or a brief guy? What? What? You know what you're going to get. You're going to get one or two word answers. All there's, day. You don't feel like there's any story behind it. Yeah, I'm a dog guy. And then that would probably be about it. Yeah. Conversation's over. Yeah. And, and what kind of a, uh, of a relationship have I established with you? Well, so often that's how people run through it. And, and do you ever notice that a lot of these interviews are like, let's just get this over with, which, which is a horrible way to right. spend time. And we've seen people predicate interviews with that very language. They'll walk into the room and say, all right, look, dude, you got to get through this. I got to get through that. Like, give me seven minutes. Let's just knock this out. Go. Imagine, right? What did I just do to your value? I just said, you have zero value. I do not care about you. What questions you need to answer, whatever. Like, and I know that what the person was trying to do, the intention behind that was, hey, I do value you. I know that you're in pain. I'm in pain. Let's be in pain together for only seven minutes. Let's get through this or whatever and let's move on, right? Versus like, hey, spend three minutes and get to be their friend. Then spend the additional four asking him a question that's going to be worthwhile <laughs> capturing on camera. Yeah, and, and that could be that can transcend the whole film. It can transcend a series of films. That one quote can be the quote of the century, if you will. Unquestionably, I mean, I had the the rare opportunity to interview Andrew Luck once on behalf of a gentleman who. Um, was in hospice care and had been afforded a dream and he wanted to go to the Indianapolis Colts game, right? And then he got a chance to meet Andrew Luck and then as fate would have it, the day that I show up to, to be with Andrew Luck, I had arrived five hours in advance so that I could set up all the lights and be so on, like dialed in or whatever. And when I show up, they said, yeah, um, so we've moved your interview with Andrew from five o'clock to 1215. And I looked at it and it's noon. <laughs> and I said... I said, uh, she said, how much time do you need to set up? I said, how much time can you give me? She said, I can give you 15 minutes. I'll be ready in 15. And so we busted our tail throwing the lights up and the setup and getting where we could or whatever to the moment where, and, and so I had this moment to breathe, you know, one breath before we brought Andrew in. And I had this, like, I had, I called an eye view. It's like an interotron. Like, so he was looking dead into the lens and he's looking at my reflection and we're having this connection or whatever. And I started and I wish that I had had more experience than I did then. Cause it was earlier in, in, in my filmmaking career. If I had taken just two minutes to get to know the man before I invited him to be in front of the camera. And because we only had 15 minutes to set stuff up, I had kind of rushed my own process. I had him. Even despite all of those those moments, I had him on the verge of being reflective enough that I almost got him to tear thinking about the fact that there was a gentleman in hospice care whose only dream in the world was to have met him. And I almost had him there. And if I'd have taken the two or three minutes to shake his hand and connect with him as a human before I put him in, the camera, in front of the camera, I'd have gotten that. And I know it. I know that now, right? Like again, this postmortem process is tremendously powerful, tremendously important. And it's, it's worth noting that like, sometimes we're going to fail, but we can be better next time. And so I know that next time I may not be successful, but I'm going to set myself up for success, right? I'm going to, I'm going to give myself the opportunity to, to swing for the fences when I have that 
that that same chance. I mean that that is amazing. The 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 thing also that I see is that especially with the newer filmmakers or people who do this for a living, they spend more time worried about the camera and the lensing and everything else like that. You 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 really feel that prepping for the interview far outweighs obviously the most beautifully shot interview. <laughs> well, imagine imagine just just in your mind's eye you know close your eyes for a moment in your mind's eye put two frames next to one another one is framed beautifully it's perfectly ratio right it's an eight to one ratio it's just it's your background is bokeh and it's all buttery and beautiful and gorgeous and that that person in front of that lens is talking like this yeah no you've had those whatever you've had those interviews though haven't you well, you know that they may start that way, right. but I will never let them in that way. But the point being, like, imagine that it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's got everything set up for it, it's exactly what you want it for. Now, on the flip side, in the other frame, put somebody who's got a blown out window in the background, right? It's shot at F11, everything is completely in, in focus, and the background is all dirty and nasty. But it's a mom, a gold star mom, talking about the memory of her son. And she's raw, and she's real, and she's powerful. I mean, damn. Like, I see it, and I can tell you which one I care about. You tell me what was shot on what. You tell me what lens was used. What, like, now, don't get me wrong. I love beautiful, buttery, gorgeous images, right? They're powerful. Now, imagine if you put the two together. Imagine the gold star mom in the buttery, gorgeous, eight to one ratio, right? Like, are you kidding me? It brings it up another level. Oh, I mean, it's it just, just, oh, sure. it just melts me into the couch, right? I mean, it just, oh, like, yes, please, right? Like, that's where I want to live for a while, you know? That That, that is amazing. And, and, and I know that uh, it's the bread and butter of any filmmaker is to be a good, the interviews are bread and butter and you have to be good at them. The people who are good at them and produce good work are, are the ones that get on a 30 for 30 or, or chef's table or whatnot. I find their interviews are just gorgeously shot and also very compelling. And they, they, they seem to have gotten that formula right. And I think that the beautiful interviews are stepping up. Like I think that we've seen a remarkable bell curve of beauty happening in that, in that arena, even since 08, right? Like you really kind of see the art of the talking head taking it to an elevated level. And I, and, 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 you know, here more recently, I've been trying to perfect, um, a technique where we can actually have someone engaged in something meaningful while having a conversation with them instead of just having to have that talking head, right? It's born of the, the, you know, um, SVU, you know, kind of, uh, of, of, of please call it peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, right? yeah right, exactly. Exactly. Right. It's, it's the peanut green, butter. You got to explain the peanut butter and jelly because I cannot watch, <laughs> I cannot watch a law and order episode without, without saying, Oh, that's peanut butter yeah, and jelly that's shot. The thing, yep. So the, the idea being that, you know, the, the homicide has taken place and the detectives show up at a place of work and they're needing to get crucial information from a from a potential witness and the witness is engaged in some activity right so you know they're they're loading in cases of beer in the back of the uh bar and the the detectives show up and they're having the conversation with them and they're like hey you ever seen this girl and they show the guy a picture and while he's still loading the cases of beer he's like 
Yeah, I see her. She shows up every Tuesday, Tuesday, 632, just like uh, clockwork, you know? And and meanwhile, they share with her, you know, well, she she was killed last night, right? He doesn't stop his work. He's still just moving the beer. He's still moving the beer. It's like, ah, well, that's just too bad. You ever see anybody that you might think of been doing it? Yeah, well, there's that Jimmy guy, you know? He's, he's the, guy, the guy, he goes to the restroom every five minutes, you know? Like, but he's still packing the beer, still packing the beer. He doesn't stop his work, you know? Never mind that detectives are, you know, maybe uh, asking you about a, a murder, right? And you wouldn't want to stop your behavior, but it's because the directors know, look, if all of a sudden the dude stops and they just stand there and talk, nobody's going to want to watch that, right? Then it just becomes a, the, the entire piece becomes nothing but people standing around, you know, either at the bar or the precinct having conversation about a dead girl, right? Like it just doesn't work. But funny enough, that's how it, uh, I look at it as an, an evo- not even an evolution, but a transition in a narrative where most of the film really is just two people talking. And how they make that interesting, and even how we do our own filmmaking to, to, to introduce blocking or interesting blocking. And that's another evolution of being able to get the most out of an interview. Fewer words, how that's paced and everything. And the nuance of interview, I think, transcends into narrative while filmmaking. I, to me, it's all about human behavior, right? And what can we do to anticipate or to elevate human behavior? Right. If you draw the line all the way back and you come full circle back to that experience of the same day edits that lived on Vimeo, they were so powerful and like moth to a flame, you know, caused me to launch into a desire to be a filmmaker. And you go, it's the human behavior in front of that camera that makes all the difference. Right. And, and so, you know, whether it's authentic in documentary or whether it's manipulated in narrative, it's what can we do? to more powerfully tell that story of human behavior. And ultimately it comes down to connection for me, right? When the behavior connects me to myself more deeply, that's when I'm most moved, right? It's when I can be, you know, when I go, Oh, I'm learning about myself while watching this thing. That is what transcends. That's the powerful movies. Those are the ones I want to talk about. Those are the ones that I want to encourage someone else to go see, watch, share. Which is difficult now because, as you know, with the the, the uh, blockbuster type movies where they're just visually overwhelming sometimes, which is, you know, that's a genre that's popular and, and it, it definitely has its place and people enjoy that. The popcorn movies, it's very difficult to come up with great narrative movies that people want to go see. And I call them quiet movies where it's actually dialogue driven. And, you know, I've heard before that all, all those kind of movies are just two people talking about their feelings. You know, but that's kind of what's important like you said it's the human condition that it's it's that's so important there's certainly the kind of movies that i get drawn to are pieces like goodwill hunting right that that it's a transcendiary moment in in the zeitgeist of culture that just it's like the perfect fit for something that exposes something in who we are at the perfect time and it just transcends right it becomes classic instantly in that moment. And, you know, for me, it was powerful because I was, you know, uh, within that same general age of the protagonists in that piece when it came out. And so, you know, of course I'm going to attach myself to that, right. In a really profound and interesting way. You know, if I'd been five when that movie comes out, it's not going to have the same power for me, right. If I was 75 at the, at the, at the time, I might have a connection with it because there would be a romantic connection that would have reconnected me to my youth, right? And my experience in that way, but maybe not. 
So what do you think the most important thing is in uh, for a take-home message? Because, uh, you know, this this podcast really is about how to conduct a great interview and how to throw all throw everything out, else out that you've learned about in interviews in the past. What would you think the most important uh, uh, teaching point would be in 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 uh, telling f- uh, filmmakers? So I would boil it down to this one analogy: conduct an interview in the same way that you would have coffee with a friend. And, and, and that framing comes from my friend, Patrick, who brought that idea to, um, to the, to the approach to a non-performative on-camera conversation, right? Meaning, would you bring a list of questions to a cup of coffee with a friend? No way. Would I feel badly about interrupting my friend in natural conversation? No way. Like um, it's going to happen in dialogue, right? So I don't have to wait for someone to have completed a full thought or a full story before I can encourage them, ask them more. I can go more deeply. I can, I give myself that freedom, right? Within the conversation to challenge somebody. If I have a friend that I think is screwing up, I'm going to call them out on the carpet, right? In that same way, you need to be able to willing, uh, have a willingness to do that with a character when they're in front of that, uh, when they're having an on-camera conversation. So um, also, I would never use film language in a conversation with a friend at coffee speeding cut, you know, um, or if something went badly, we would just continue conversation until that, until we, you know, continued on, right? Like my cup of coffee goes dry. I may mention something to the waiter or I may put my hand up or whatever, but I'm not going to stop my conversation with somebody until my coffee is filled up again. Right. If a light goes down or whatever, just segue, into non-story related conversation, but keep the conversation going because then when you segue back, then it remains natural. It doesn't ever become performative. Um, there's a, there's a technique to that that I call the vamp and that's in musical theater. If you're familiar with musical theater at all, there are moments in musical theater where characters stop singing, but the music doesn't stop. And so they start dialogue and you never know in a performance how long that dialogue is going to take because some nights there's, you know, more of a breath to it and other nights there's not. And so what happens is the, the songwriter writes in a repeat, right? So it could be three bars, it could be four bars, it could be two bars, but it's a vamp and it just, it continues to repeat until the conductor raises their arms and strokes the downbeat. And now we continue on in, in the song and that's called a vamp. And so we use vamps like crazy in, in interviews, right? So if I'm conducting an interview with you and all of a sudden a train goes by, I will never ask you to hold for sound. I'll just vamp. I'll start talking to you about something else that's not story relevant. And then the moment the train has gone by, then I'll continue the conversation. And so, you know, I think that's a really powerful way to approach it that makes, that allows you to begin to make decisions in the moment that are going to be, that are going to set you up for success. Meaning, you know, if I'm having a cup of coffee with a friend, how would I do that? Great. Make those decisions behaviorally. And you're going to always set a really good framework for a very successful interview, right? You don't have to think about all of the specifics. Just don't do anything that you wouldn't do with a friend if you were having a cup of coffee, right? As soon as you start making bad decisions like that, then you're going to set up for failure. I think that's uh, that's definitely good advice. And, and as far as, um, and I'll go down this route because I, I want to know who you've, who's, the, who's uh, uh, some of the most notable people you've interviewed and, uh, 
I, it's one of those things that um, I'm sure we all want to know and kind of how they reacted. Okay, so um, I, I would say that the best story around um, a powerful person that I've had the opportunity to interview that really challenged my ability to conduct a successful interview um, was Paul Rice. He's the founder and CEO of Fairtrade USA, okay? He has been on the cover of Success Magazine twice, Okay, so this is the kind of guy that is a power player, right? He he um, was in Nicaragua um, and and helped uh, create uh, um, fair trade practices at a time where you can imagine that like the alternative could possibly be like um, guerrilla uh, retaliation, right? So this is not a weak dude. So we show up and we're going to have this on-camera conversation. And uh, the the producer um, goes over and, and introduces himself and they start this conversation and, and Paul is changing shirts in his office and he says, all right, where's the list of questions you're gonna give me? And the uh, producer goes, well, um, we conduct uh, our on-camera conversations very differently than most people do. We just have a natural conversation. It's just real, it's, it's, it's you know, it's whatever. And Paul goes, no, no, no. You've never seen me on camera, I'm good. Where are the questions? And the producer's like, um, well, look, I really don't have any of them written down. Um, give me a moment. And so then he's, you know, coming to me and going, Hey, look, this is what just happened. Like Paul just called me on the rug, whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, here's the mind map, right? Tell him that we're going to talk about origin story, fair trade practices. What can somebody do to make a, a lifestyle change today in order to affect and assure that slavery is not a part of the sourcing of your product, right? Like, so I had this like four or five um, major highlight uh, topics or whatever, and uh, producer went back in and was able to sell that. Whew. Okay, I thought crisis averted, right? Dude is, is going to have to like really be on point today or whatever, but we got through that moment. Okay, so then Paul steps outside and he's being miked, right? And I'm having conversation with him because again, while the microphone is being put on him, I'm just chatting him up, keeping his attention on everything, but what we're about to do, right? You don't want to bring attention to the idea that he's going to be putting a mic on him. I'm just like, Hey, my friend, Jeremy's going to, uh, just needs to take a moment here and, and, and get you set up for audio. And then I'm continuing conversation and I'm like, Hey man, the producers do a background on everybody, uh, here. And it said, you know, one of the words that was used for you was Hellraiser. I'm like, that's pretty wild or whatever. He's like, yeah. And that was like it, and like no additional response. That was just, and I'm like, you uh, thought you'd get some sort so, of response. <laughs> yeah. I thought, okay, I'm going to make a connection with this. Right. So, so I'm trying to make this connection and I'm failing just to connect with him on a person to person basis. Right. Thankfully, um, Jeremy, who was running audio goes, Oh, Hey man, I see that you're a uh, scuba diver. And, and Paul's like, yeah. He's like, you scuba? He's like, yeah. And they start and they all of a sudden like, boom, they connect over scuba. And I'm just like, oh, thank you, Jeremy. Like you just saved me. Right. <clears throat> so, so, uh, so this moment is now transitioning to the point where I'm going to need to have this on camera conversation. So I take the, the relay stick from Jeremy, right. And I engage in conversation with Paul and I've got him going now. Thankfully, Paul's in a little better place now that we've started talking scuba. And, um, I gesture to where Paul's going to sit and Paul takes a seat and I, you know, sit where I'm going to sit and I'm continuing to have conversation with him. And he goes, stop, hold up. I want to see this frame. You sit here. 
And so he has, he gets up and he has me sit down where he was seated and he goes in behind the camera and he looks at the frame that we've set up for his interview. What? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like what a power play, right? Yeah, like, right. Like, like straight like up. Who's, who's in control? Yes. Here, right? right. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. Dog. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you just going to see who you, you know, like I am the alpha dog here. Right. Right. You little and pop. Don't, you forget, don't you forget it. Right. right. <laughs> okay. So in that, so, so he likes the frame. He sits back down. I sit back down and now I'm launching into conversation with him. Right. And I'm like, Oh, here we go. So I just strap figuratively strap in and just like, let's go. And I just, another technique in an interview, um, is, is to note that the person is going to be a reflection of you. Right. So the energy I bring to the moment is going to be the is going to be the energy that that I receive back, right? So if I have if I need them to be really thoughtful and introspective, that's where I'm going to be when I talk, right? Or if they're about to play the Super Bowl, then I'm going to be big and loud and fired up and right like I'm going to live there. So I'm like I've got to like get this I got to match this guy's energy. So I immediately start like let's go. So it was like so we're just in, and he is so articulate and he has, you know, his answers dialed in terms of like his radio answers, right? Whatever. And so then I start challenging him a little bit on some stuff. And there was a moment where like, we really got into this dialogue or whatever, and we're really having this moment. And the moment that the interview turned around for me is when I go, I go, man, that is awesome. And he goes, fuck yeah, it is. <laughs> and I was like, and I go, I go, you are fucking right. And it was like, boom, <laughs> we are there now. Right. In this moment yeah. where I met him on his energy, he met me on his energy and we trusted one another. Right. And, and it took a whole nother level. It immediately, like the walls fell off, like his, all of his defenses were gone. And we just had a real conversation. And since then, I have a tremendous friendship with this dude. Like, it's right. Crazy. I could just, I could just text a dude and be like, let's go do some tequila shots. Like let's chill. And he's just such a neat dude, but he has to, in his line of work, really be an alpha. And so that's how he approached to begin with. And once I met his alpha energy and once we connected on that alpha moment, then it was like, that's what I'm talking about. Right now we can really like, get somewhere and be transformative in who we are and what's happening here in this moment. So uh, that's by far right now, my most challenging interview to date. I can't imagine. Paul Rice, founder and CEO of Fairtrade USA. This dude is, he, he is, he is something else and he is a powerful, uh, powerful character. That's, I mean, that, that, that is amazing. Did you, so right now you're um, to pivot into what's what's happening with you now. What what have you been doing lately, and uh, what do you look at to do in the future? So um, I've had the pleasure and opportunity to um, be doing some freelance work recently um, as a creative director, and um, and and I'm been doing a good bit of work by with a group called Muse Storytelling, um, and one of the more um, interesting or marquee. Um, clients that they're doing a, a good bit of work with is Four Seasons. And uh, so it's been really interesting getting to be a part of telling stories around a billion dollar luxury brand, but noting that at the core and the essence of their DNA, who they are 
is that they believe that the world is richer when you connect to the people in the world around you. And so we're able to use that as our invitation into discovering and doing a lot of story finding around pieces that help them leverage how they can remind people uh, to take their time. And that um, is the very specific language around a campaign that they just launched recently um, that, uh, that is the first of um, uh, a host of storytelling that they want to do around that idea. And it's the largest campaign that they've run in the last 10 years. So it's been uh, really powerful uh, to be a part of a team that's working on um, creating and helping facilitate storytelling um, on in with somebody that maybe, you know, more naturally, the documentary film world um, often finds itself um, helping emerging countries tell stories in order to help get support and, and gain interest and traction around that. Um, you know, on the on the other side of that coin is a brand like Four Seasons, which you think could potentially be full of empty uh, you know, stories, stories that aren't nearly as powerful in terms of helping people make a human connection. But what's interesting is that in spending the amount of time that we have getting to know them, getting to know the people that have used their services and getting to know their employees, um, you really start to understand how powerfully um, they want to help people connect. And it's that that is the secret sauce of Four Seasons and why people return is because the way that they feel and the way that they feel connected to the brand and to the people around them when they have that experience. And so um, it's just been a tremendously rewarding and interesting opportunity to, to, to tell those stories. I imagine it was a challenge to even approach a, a, such a known brand, which really is a luxury brand, and, and kind of uh, apply that to kind of everyday uh, things that that makes it more human, so to speak. And I think that uh, obviously that that was your challenge. And how do you how you pitch a, a big company like that, which is a whole nother thing. But um, well, I, I think it's great. Now, do you have a do you have a way that people can get a hold of you or see some of your work? Yeah. So um, I just tend to live um, by Grant Peel in most social situations. So whether that's personally or online. So I am I'm Grant Peel on Facebook, Grant Peel on Twitter, Grant Peel on Instagram. It's just everything lives uh, with uh, Peel spelled P-E-E-L-L-E, two L's. Uh, and uh, that, that's how you can get in touch with me. Well, uh, we really appreciate the time you spent with us. And, uh, you know, we wish you luck, and um, and I think uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll go on to series two and three and four uh, with uh, all the other aspects of filmmaking. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks, James. Okay, that was our first podcast in the book. Uh, that was Grant Peel, and uh, by all means, if you can, check out some of his work. He has done a, a documentary, Stand With Me, and I'm fine, thanks. And uh, again, uh, not only a great creative, but just a wonderful person um, overall. So we are going to try to release these, uh, if not every other week, uh, once a month. But I think we can maintain a pace of every other week. And uh, hopefully we get a few listeners and, uh, and uh, you have... Uh, the, the uh, connection to hopefully share it with other people. Anyway, uh, this is James signing out and thanks so much. <laughs>